And, and to clarify, tomorrow morning will be story time with the youngins. Um, so we won't do a whole lot more than learn some of these cool stories. In fact, uh, one of the stories that I want to make sure and share with you guys before we finish is of a really fun guy from American history, just like we talked about in the Sunday School Hour, not a perfect person, but someone that unquestionably God used and did some pretty significant things through. Dwight Eisenhower was born in Texas. When he was a young man, his family moved to Kansas. And this is a family photo from his family, 1902. This is when he was 12 years old. When he was 13, so the following year, he was running on the family farm. He fell down and scraped his knee. And that's just part of rite of passage, I feel like, for boys growing up. You need to scrape your knee. That's fine, except in early America, before there's like neosporin, right? Before there's antibiotics, antiseptics, if you got a scrape, it could get infected. And if it got infected, it actually could kill you. Well, his scrape got infected, but he didn't want to tell mom and dad about it. So he just toughed it out. It came Sunday morning time for church. The family's going to church. He told his mom, I don't feel very good. And apparently mom knew that he's not a faker. So she says, okay, that's fine. You stay home. We're going to church. We'll check on you and get back. The records say they left for church that morning. When they got back that night, and I just want to clarify, the records indicate they left in the morning and got back that night. I don't know how long you think church should go. They were gone all day. They got back that night and mom went upstairs to go check on Dwight. When she gets upstairs, she screams. Dad comes running up. Dwight was running a fever. He actually was in delirium coming in and out of consciousness and mom is very nervous for him. So dad runs to town, gets a doctor. Doctor comes back, horse and buggy gets there to the Eisenhower farm and goes up and checks Dwight and starts trying to find out what's wrong. So feeling him and feels that his leg is incredibly swollen. So they decide they need to take the pants off to see the leg, except his leg was so swollen, they had to cut his pants off and cut his boot off. And when they looked at his leg, his leg was purple and black and it was going up into his body. The doctor said, that's an infection. If that infection gets into his body, it actually could kill him. And so mom and dad said, well, well what can we do? He said, well, I, I might can save his life, but we'll have to amputate his leg. Mom and dad said, whatever you gotta do, do it. He says, okay, I'm gonna run back to town. I'm gonna get my medical kit. I'm gonna get my saw. And I'm gonna come back so we can amputate his leg. Dwight was conscious long enough to hear the doctor say, amputate and saw. And he starts screaming, right? As, okay, let's be honest. I think all of us in that moment are screaming a little bit. So he starts yelling for his older brother, Edgar. He says, Edgar, Edgar, get in here. Edgar comes in the room. And, and the way the story unfolds, as far as what, what is recorded, there's, there's a limited knowledge we have, but what we know is he starts screaming for Edgar. Edgar comes in, and over the course of time, he makes Edgar promise that Edgar will not let the doctor come back and amputate his leg. He tells Edgar, I would rather die than lose my leg. Now, you can imagine Edgar probably was trying to negotiate with him a little bit, like, hey, man, I, I know it's scary, but we want you to live. We want you to stay alive. And if this is what the doctor thinks, and so they negotiate, but finally, Dwight makes him promise I would rather die than lose my leg. Don't let the doctor take my leg. So he promises, I will not let the doctor take your leg. The doctor comes back, horse and buggy, had his medical bag, has his saw, and walks upstairs, and Dwight stands in the doorway. And the doctor says, or excuse me, Edgar. Edgar's in the doorway blocking for Dwight. So Edgar's in the doorway, and the doctor says, Edgar, I need to get in. And Edgar says, sorry, doc. I gave my brother my word. I won't let you in. Now, again, you can imagine how this is unfolding. Right, The doctor is there because Dwight is sick and, and we got to try to save his life, but Edgar won't let the doctor in. So the doctor says, Edgar, I, I got to get in to help your brother. He says, sorry, doc, I gave my word. You can't go in. And, and this goes on for several moments. Now, 
again, you can imagine how this unfolds where the doctor's probably going, hey, your brother's actually dying. I probably can save him. You gotta let me in. Sorry, doc, I gave my word. Edgar, if your brother dies, this is gonna be your fault, right? Like his blood's on your head because I could save him. Sorry, doc, I gave my word. And, and if you read the account, what's boggling to the mind is it has no mention of the parents, like, where are mom and dad in this moment? I feel like this is a great mom and dad moment. Be like, hey, buddy, I know it's scary. Get out, doctor. Go. Like, mom and dad say nothing in this account. The doctor cannot get in the room, so he finally turns to leave, and the record says when he left, he threw up his hands in frustration and said the only thing that'll save this boy's life now is a miracle. And then he slammed the door shut behind him. Well, when he said miracle, it was like the light bulb moment for mom and dad, and they said, we need to pray. So mom, dad, and Edgar gather around Dwight's bed and they pray that night. And over the next couple of weeks, every morning, every evening, the entire family would be there praying for Dwight. Well, at the end of the first week, the swelling and this coloration was going down on his leg. At the end of the second week, it's totally gone. There's no swelling, there's no discoloration. They call the doctor back. The doctor says, I don't know what happened. Looks like a miracle. And the family's going, yes, we think it's a miracle too. Why this is such a big deal what Dwight became really noted for was his leadership in World War II, right? When the Allied forces are going up, primarily we remember Hitler, right? We remember a lot of what was happening with the Nazis. Dwight is the guy that even Winston Churchill said, there's nobody like this guy. This guy is special. We want him to be the commander of all the Allied forces, what's going on. It was Dwight's strategies that led for so many of those battles to be so effective, even on D-Day. Dwight was this amazing leader. And here's what's interesting. Had Dwight lost his leg, he can't even join the military, much less make it to his defining moment leadership World War II. This is interesting because you see very early on, God was doing something in his life as if God had this great plan and purpose. We know God did, but you see God's intervention in his life. Well, at the end of the war, people on both political sides were saying, please run for office. We need better leaders than the one we have. Will you please run for president? So he finally decides he's gonna run for president. He runs and gets elected to be the president of the United States before he is sworn in. Now, Dwight grew up where his family very faithfully went to church. His grandparents actually were ministers out on the wild west frontier. He grew up very aware and conscious of God. Before he is sworn in as president, one of the things he wrote in his journal, and this is just a day or two before he's sworn in, one of the things he wrote in his journal was he said he was looking at America and he was afraid that America was becoming too secular, that she was forgetting God. And he said, America, as a nation, we can never forget God or our nation is gonna be over. I think it's fascinating that he thought America was becoming too secular back then, right? If he looked at the world today, he'd be shocked to say the least where we are. But he said, I want America to remember who God is. Well, what's he gonna do? As president, before he is sworn in, at his inauguration, one of the things that he says, giving this inaugural speech, he says, I want to help people remember God. I have a video clip I wanna show you because what he did is he actually led the nation in prayer, again, because he wanted them to remember who God was. Here's Dwight praying at his own inauguration. My friends, before I begin the expression of those thoughts that I deem appropriate, uh, to this moment, would you permit me the privilege of uttering a little private prayer of my own? And I ask that you bow your heads. Almighty God, as we stand here at this moment, 
my associates in the, my future associates in the executive branch of government join me in beseeching that thou will make full and complete our dedication to the service of the people in this throng and their fellow citizens everywhere. Give us, we pray, the power to discern clearly right from wrong and allow all our words and actions to be governed thereby and by the laws of this land. Especially we pray that our concern shall be for all the people, regardless of station, race, or calling. May cooperation be permitted and be the mutual aim of those who, under the concepts of our Constitution, hold to differing political faiths, so that all may work for the good of our beloved country and thy glory. Amen. One of the really interesting things about this is uh, there is an actual handwritten prayer that he wrote in his limo on the way to go the, to the inauguration at, at Wall Builders Organization. We have almost 160,000 original artifacts, documents, um, different things from American history. We actually own his original handwritten prayer that he prayed that day. Okay, so this is, I mean, just there's so many cool moments from history. But remember, the reason he wanted to do this from his own journal was he was afraid people were forgetting who God was and he wanted to remind Americans, help Americans remember who God was. One of the other things he did the exact same year was he started the National Prayer Breakfast. It still goes on today that we have congressmen, we have senators, leaders from around the world every single year will gather together and there is a prayer breakfast remembering who God is. Dwight's also the guy, he, he attended church in Washington, D.C. The church he attended was the church of the Reverend George Dougherty. George Dougherty was a Scottish immigrant, had only been in America a couple of years. And, and George Dougherty told the story that, that his kids had, or his son specifically had gone to school and his son came home and he asked his son, what did you do in school today? And his son said, well, we open with prayer. And then we said the Pledge of Allegiance. And he said, I asked my son, what's the Pledge of Allegiance? Because he was a new immigrant at that time. He didn't know the Pledge of Allegiance. And so he said, my son told me, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Because at that time, there was no under God in the pledge. And he heard it and he said, I thought, this seems like it could be the pledge to, to the Soviet nation or, or to any other nation in the world. It doesn't seem that there's anything about this that makes it American. And he says, and what makes America different is we're a nation under God. And, and, and you should never pledge to a flag or to a nation that hasn't first submitted itself to God. So the following Sunday, he preached this sermon. The sermon he preached was called Under God. And Dwight attends his church and Dwight's on the front row of his church as president. And he gives this sermon where he says that there's no way as a nation we should have, and just goes through all these things he just said. The sermon you actually can find online. You can read his whole sermon. It's very interesting how he lays it out where we can't be like other nations of the world and we're gonna pledge allegiance to our nation or our flag without acknowledging who God is because we're a Christian nation above all. He goes through this whole thing. At the end of his sermon, Dwight called for a meeting right after church because some of his cabinet members were there. There were some congressmen, some senators there and said, okay, guys, 
There's a project we have to get done. And they are the ones who said, okay, we're gonna do this. They draft it up. He's the one that signs it in. He's the one that makes this change, putting under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. So Dwight does that also in 1954. Dwight takes one of the rooms at the Capitol building and he says, we need to have a place where all of our congressmen, all of our senators can go and they can pray and they can hear from God. They can seek God. They can have time in Bible study before they have to go vote on bills or issues. So he takes and makes one of the rooms at the Capitol actually a prayer chapel. It's still there today. It's still in use today. Probably not used enough, but it is still in use today. There's a stained glass in it. And as George Washington kneeling in prayer, around him is Psalm 16:1, which says, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. Dwight's also the guy, just a couple years later, who signed policy or signed legislation, and God we trust became part of the all, all of our American currency. And God we trust have been put on a couple of coins back in the Civil War under Abraham Lincoln. Salmon Chase was the guy to help do that. But then Eisenhower says, we need to put it on all of our currency. So that happens in 1956. Dwight's also the guy who makes our national motto, in God we trust. There's a lot more things Dwight did, but this is just one of the things or one of the sequence of things he did when I look back and see that he said, man, I wanna help Americans remember who God is. You see in his administration many things he was doing to help put God in the forefront of what we did. And even as we look at a nation, our, our nation, we talked about this already, it's, it's not a perfect nation, but we've enjoyed more blessings. We've enjoyed more stability. We've enjoyed more prosperity, more freedoms than any other nation in the world. And I would argue one of the things that David wrote in Psalms, this is part of the reason why we've enjoyed those blessings. He said, blessed is that nation whose God is the Lord. We have been so blessed in our nation that God has continued to allow leaders to be risen up, that God has chosen leaders, that we've had people in our nation's past that remembered and recognized who God was. And when you put God first, there are blessings that flow from that in your life. And that's not just for us as individuals or us as families, it's also true in nations. And this is where our nation has been so unique and so different. And the reason I highlight Dwight is because there's, there's lots of examples in our nation where you have some really good leaders and you've had some really bad leaders. And I can go through a list of both of those because we've studied most all of the presidents in our nation. We've, we've studied most of the great leaders and the generals and, and at our organization, we've done a lot of work of that. And I bring this up because one of the things that is obviously at the forefront of most conversations, if you turn on the news today, there's an election coming, right? And knowing that this election is coming forward, first of all, one of the things that I would just tell you, side note, um, but I think is vitally important is as Christians, we have to be able to be part of the process of choosing the right kind of leaders for our nation. If you're not registered to vote, let me just encourage you right now, you need to get registered to vote. You need to be able to take part in the process. And one of the things as, as we look big picture now is, well, as we look at elections, and by the way, I'm not gonna say things politically tonight. You can just know that. I'm not gonna be political. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna say, let's look back at the Bible. Because throughout the history of the world, the Bible gives us examples of really good leaders and really bad leaders. The Bible gives us examples of, of people that, that God said, be like this, and people that God said, don't be like this. So, so I just wanna be biblical, not political. Let, let's be biblical for a little bit tonight. And I'm gonna ask this question based on something that we see in scripture. And, and Proverbs 14, 34, it tells us that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness becomes very interesting in this because it says that's what exalts a nation. Right, President Trump, when he ran his first time, make America great. Okay, that, that's a neat slogan, but I would point out if you don't know what made her great in the first place, you can never make her great again, right? The Bible says 
What exalts a nation is righteousness, right? It, it, it's not somebody's personality. It's not how cool a person is. It's not how much we like or dislike a person as an individual. It is actually something much deeper, righteousness. Well, if righteousness is what is a priority, the question is, then how do we determine righteousness? If you're looking at a leader, how do you determine righteousness? And, and, and I would point out, there's a lot of things the Bible gives indication of areas that impact or affect righteousness. One of the things the Bible tells us, Isaiah, when, when, when you go through Isaiah, God gives Isaiah some thoughts on, on judgment that's coming on the nation of Israel, but also how Israel will be restored in time. And one of the things God told Isaiah about the restoration of Israel, when Israel would finally be stable again, they'd be their own nation. And one of the things the Bible says, Isaiah 1, 26, I will give you judges as at the beginning and lawyers as at the first. Then you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Now, the city of righteousness is something that was going to happen in the restoration process only after the then happened. So what happened first? Once they had the right kind of judges and lawyers, then they were gonna be the righteous city. It's interesting, the Bible gives an awful lot of indication about how judges can impact righteousness. Now, we'll talk more about this in a little bit because throughout the history of our nation, if you look at something, for example, like the issue of abortion, you know no state has ever voted to approve abortion? It was judges who said this is legal, judges. Judges can impact the righteousness of the land. And again, I'll come back to judges in a little bit, but I just wanna highlight the Bible does indicate that judges impact righteousness in the land, but that's not all. If you go through right from Genesis when, when everything unfolds, and we talked about Noah a little bit this morning and after Noah, finally you get to Abraham. And in Genesis 12, you have this unfolding of God's covenant with Abraham. One of the things that tells us in Genesis 12 with Abraham God told him, the Lord said unto Abram, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. So I'm gonna make you a nation and then I'm gonna bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. Now we've already established he's gonna be a nation and then blessings and cursings flow from that. This is one of the things that even as we talk about the creation of the nation of Israel, it's interesting that you see that God made a covenant with Abraham. Israel was part of the fulfillment of God's covenant, but, but if God made a covenant with Abraham, right? We're in the New Testament. We're part of a new covenant, right? So, so there's some thought, does this really still apply now? I could point to Romans where it talks about that we've been grafted in, that we have not replaced or cut away the tree and the root. But let me just point out about covenant. One of the things the Bible says, Psalms 105, he remembers his covenant forever, the word he commanded for a thousand generations. Okay, so if God makes a covenant, God, if God says he's gonna do something, God's gonna do it. He's gonna keep his word. But let's just focus on this last part. He keeps his command for a thousand generations. In David's mind, as he writes this, that's a really big picture, right? Thousand, that's a long time, that's a lot of generations. Let me give you an interesting perspective. If you go back in Bible genealogy, they have names. Like from Adam all the way up through Jesus and then from Jesus coming forward, you actually can track genealogy and we know how many generations it's been since Adam. We know how many generations it's been since Abraham, how many generations since Jesus. If you look at Abraham, for example, how many generations do you think we've come since Abraham? You can just think about this for a second. It will shock you how few it actually is. At least it shocked me when I first looked this up and did the research on it. We are less than 200 generations from Abraham. Less than 200 now, what does that mean in context of this? It means there's still a whole lot of covenant left on the covenant God made with Abraham. 
If it goes for a thousand generations, there's still a lot left. And I also, there's a lot of verses I could point to, but Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he changes his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does, does he promise and not fulfill? Those are rhetorical because of course, if God said he's gonna do something, he's going to do it. Well, if God makes this covenant with Abraham, I'm gonna make you a nation and I'm gonna bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. This is something that becomes interesting looking back at this covenant God makes with Abraham, then I would argue America's position with Israel becomes very significant because if we are putting ourselves in a place where God says the only two options are blessings or curses, well, well that's not really a trick question for me because I know what side I wanna be on, right? Like that's a pretty easy multiple choice. I'll choose the blessing side, that's fine, well, not to be political, but if you look between the two candidates or the two political parties right now, it, it, it's not really comparable when it comes to positions with Israel, right? This should not be something that's really confusing. Now, I'm trying to be very sensitive. If I was home in my church, I'd tell you a lot of things different, but I'm trying to respect pastor. But if you want to know my thoughts afterwards, let's have a little Q&A. We'll talk about it. I'll tell you both candidates. I'll tell you exactly where they stand because I don't think as a Christian, this is a confusing issue because they're both making their positions fairly plain, what they've done and where they stand. And this is something that, again, as a nation, this matters. And, and one of the things that I think is worth noting as well, I am telling you everything tonight as an American, where we stand as Americans or how we should think as Christians in America. But, but understand what we're talking about doesn't apply to America as much as it does to the big picture principles from the Bible. Because what I'm saying would be true if we were in Ethiopia or if we were in South Africa or if we were in Germany, it wouldn't matter because God's principles are true regardless of what nation you live in. And remember Jeremiah was part of the captivity and as, as, as Israel is conquered and defeated, he is now a captive. And God tells Jeremiah that you need to pray for the peace of the land in which you are living. For when it goes dwell with them, it will go well with you. God told Jeremiah as a slave, pray for the land that you're living in because you enjoy the benefits when the land does well. I would pray no matter where I was that God bless the nation I was in and that God restored righteousness to my land no matter where I was. It just so happens that we live in America and I'm very grateful we live in America. I feel it's a great blessing to live in America, but this is not an American truth we're saying. This is a biblical truth. This is a biblical truth regardless of where you live, and this is part of the nation of Israel. Now, if we go past the nation of Israel, right, if, or at least past the, the covenant God makes with Abraham, because one of the things that, right, we see at the end of Genesis, you have Joseph, and Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. He goes into Egypt, but finally when he gets to Egypt, he reveals himself to his brothers, and then his family moves into Egypt, so the family gets to be reunited in Egypt, and then Exodus picks up, and now there's been several hundred years, and there are millions of the Israelites, and they're enslaved, and there's a new Pharaoh who doesn't remember Joseph or what he did and how he contributed, and he just sees the Israelites the threat, and so we're gonna enslave them, and then God raises up a deliverer, and Moses comes, and Moses leads them right out, and, and God does these incredible miracles revealing his wonder and his power and his might and all that happens, and as this happens, right? I mean, just crazy miracle after crazy miracle. I love the book of Exodus, and just seeing part of what God did and what happened because the Red Sea parts, they walk through on dry ground. Pharaoh's army is swallowed up. They finally come out and God reveals himself to them. They get to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, this is interesting. God gives them a series of commands and laws in the Old Testament. And it starts at Mount Sinai. And there's roughly 613 commands that God gives the Israelites in the Old Testament. Now, inside of those commands, God dealt with every imaginable possible topic, right? Literally, because 
the Israelites had been Egyptians for 400 years. And God shows up and God has to say, okay, everything you used to do, we don't do it that way anymore, right? We, we have a new way of doing things. And if you read in, in the first five books of the Bible, if you read in Leviticus, if you ever, I don't know if you've read Leviticus, it's not like the most riveting read ever, but it's kind of interesting if you look at things. Why was God telling them some of the things he was telling them, Right? Like, hey, certain kinds of animals, maybe don't eat that. Actually, maybe cook some of your meat before you eat it. Like, if you ever think about why was God having to tell them that? Because that was not the way they did things on any level. And it's interesting just seeing that God is having to reshape everything about their life, everything about the way they think. And so God gives them commands that deal with everything. Now, the reason I bring this up is because what happens a lot of times as Christians is we have issues that are great priorities in our own life. Just as us as individuals, right? So, so maybe I care a lot about hunting. I care a lot about the Second Amendment. Or I care a lot about the environment. I care a lot about the economy. I care a lot about immigration, right? You might have an issue that is your main issue, your priority. The reason I bring this up is because if you look at what God did in the Israelites, God gave them 613 commands, but I would point out that God did have a priority that there were some that were different than others because there were 10 that God wrote in stone. God said, let's start with these, and then after we get this figured out, then we'll work on all the other things, right? So God starts with the 10 commandments. This is the foundation of all law. And by the way, even the 10 commandments have impacted all law in the Western hemisphere. This is still impactful for us, but, but God does it for the Israelites. The 10 commandments, if you look at the 10 commandments, it's interesting to see what God prioritized and what God said, this is where we start. And then after this, there's a lot of other stuff we can do. Because if you look at the 10 commandments and, and hopefully you're familiar with the 10 commandments, you can find them in Exodus, you can find them in Deuteronomy. But as you go through, one of the things that I did not know until we started doing a, a lot more work with some of what I do with wall builders, uh, I didn't know there's different versions of the 10 commandments other than like Deuteronomy and Exodus. But apparently there are four different versions between the Jews have a version and then there are three different Protestant versions. Had no idea. The U.S. Supreme Court in 1980, case Stone v. Graham, they said that copies of the Ten Commandments are not allowed to be displayed in public schools because of the deep theological controversy that is pervading the nation. I didn't know there was a controversy. I had no idea. Okay, I'm assuming most of you don't either because I, I mean, I don't know that anybody knows this. Of the four different versions, the Jewish version and the three Protestant versions, do you know the difference between any of them? Because I didn't. Had no idea. Do you know the only difference in the four versions is how they're numbered and what appears in what numbering? Now, the reason this matters, for the Jews, for example, like for Protestants, we have generally what we call a prologue, okay? I am the Lord thy God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt. One, you shall have no other gods before me, right? So the prologue is I am the Lord thy God. The Jews say, oh, no, 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 that's the first command. The first command is I am the Lord thy God. You shall have no other gods before me is like subsection B of command one. But why does this matter? I think it's interesting. And by the way, nobody disputes that God said all of this or that God wrote all of this down. The only d distinction is where, what words appear and what number of commands, which I feel like now is just really silly that we're pretending like there's a big controversy over that. Because if you go back to the original Hebrew, they, they weren't actually numbered in Hebrew. They were paragraph form that God gave them and God said, here's what they are. And then people tried to navigate what are the 10 and where do they fall, et cetera. 
Anyway, it's all from God. You should do it all. But the Jews point out the first command has to be, I am the Lord thy God. And here's why they argue it has to be first. Because if you don't acknowledge that he is God, then none of the other commands matter. So you have to very first acknowledge that he is God. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. We should acknowledge that he is God. And scripture, by the way, is very full of this. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. The Bible gives indication we should acknowledge God. Jesus said, right, if we could not acknowledge him before men, that he wouldn't acknowledge us before our Father in heaven. We're supposed to acknowledge him, but I think it's interesting, even the Ten Commandments acknowledges this. Well, what would we call the ability to publicly acknowledge God? We would call that religious liberty or religious freedom, right? This is a public religious acknowledgement of God, which is what the Bible indicates. It's interesting that for most people, even for Christians, when we make a list of things that are the most important in our priorities when it comes to elections, religious liberty, religious freedom, not always high on the list for a lot of people, but if you look at the 10 commandments, this is where God starts. Says, okay, the very first thing you have to acknowledge me. We live in a political climate where there are people that say, well, we don't want kids to be able to pray in public school. That's unconstitutional. Okay, it's not at all, but there are people that hold that position. There's people that say, well, we don't want governors or mayors to be able to pray because that's unconstitutional. Separation of church and state. That statement is totally ridiculous the way it's applied today. We have articles on our website. We've actually written books about this kind of stuff. It's totally different than what people understand. But here's what I would point out. The Bible is clear that we should be able to acknowledge God and even acknowledge God in public. Well, that means in America, if we're gonna be able to do that, that right needs to be politically protected. The founding fathers, when you go back to the declaration, they acknowledged that we had God-given rights and the role of government was to protect those rights. And they pointed out the king's not protecting our God-given rights. We want our rights protected. Well, this was the point of American government was to protect our God-given rights. One of the things God called us to do is to be able to acknowledge and worship him. And I would point out in America, what was always so unique is we respected the rights of conscience. That that unlike in England where you had to be Catholic or then you had to be Anglican, and if you weren't Anglican, then you couldn't have the freedom to really worship God the way you wanted. We said in America, you don't have to be part of one denomination or one religion. In America, you have the freedom to, according to your conviction, worship God. So if you're a Quaker or if, if you're a Methodist or if you're a Wesleyan or if you're a Baptist, you, whatever, whatever denomination you come from, you have the freedom according to your conscience. And this is also a very biblical idea. The word conscience is mentioned 30 times in the New Testament alone where it talks about that we're supposed to worship God with a clear conscience or with a clean conscience. This is part of that idea. But number one, I would point out religious freedom actually is part of the Ten Commandments. Well, if you go down to something like thou shalt not commit adultery, what is God trying to protect with this command? I would argue God's trying to protect marriage, right? God wants to protect the institution of marriage. And not only is marriage part of the Ten Commandments, also honor thy father and mother. Okay, this is family. Not only do we have the definition that family is a mom and a dad, we've also clarified genders. There's male and female because there's a father and a mother, Right? This is part of the Ten Commandments. Now, why does this matter? Because this is the foundation upon which we build. If we don't get this right, everything else are insignificant details. You have to start with the foundation of what is the most important. Now, God, for the Israelites, they're building a brand new nation. He says, okay, here's where we start. Worship me, right? They need to acknowledge who he is, but also part of the Ten Commandments, we want to protect marriages. We don't protect families. And politically, this is, it's mind-boggling to me how this, 
escapes under the radar so often because if you look at almost every single social problem we deal with in America, you know what the number one underlying factor is for every single social problem we deal with? The breakdown of the family. Almost without exception across the board. What we know statistically and historically The stronger the family, the stronger the society, the stronger the community, the stronger the nation. Family is one of the most important things there is, and there are people who are attacking the family, saying, well, no, marriage, it doesn't really matter. And if two people love each other, that's all that matters. We're cheapening something that God made to be a sacred covenant, not just between two individuals, between two individuals and God. Right, this was a big deal, and, and even this notion of family, but this is part of the Ten Commandments. Also, part of the Ten Commandments, you have things like thou shalt not steal, or thou shalt not cover thy neighbors, etc. Go through the list. God was also protecting private property. Now, this becomes a big deal in American history because under kings, there's no private property. The king believes he owns everything. Well, in America, we acknowledge that, no, 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 we recognize private property, and we want to protect private property. James Madison said the most sacred of all your property is your earnings. I would like to restore that again, please, right? Government, you're not allowed to take my earnings from me, but, but here's what's significant. Because we could talk about eminent domain, we could talk about tax policy, that, those are things that impact private property. Well, God was concerned with protecting property. I, I, I do not understand how you can buy a house, you can pay off the mortgage, And then if you miss your property taxes or your property payment one year, they take your house from you. Okay, you've misunderstood the idea of private property, right? But this is part of where our nation is that we don't respect private property the way we should. But the thing I will tell you from the Ten Commandments that I would argue is the foundation that everything has to start with is when it goes back to thou shalt not kill. Now, in the Hebrew, the word kill is actually a little different because there are different... (laughs) There's different kinds of shedding blood. What you find in Hebrew is, in the Ten Commandments, it deals with shedding innocent blood. Now, the reason there's a distinction is because you can shed blood that's not innocent and you can shed blood that is innocent. When David killed Goliath, okay, he was not shedding innocent blood. When David murdered Uriah, he was shedding innocent blood. David didn't get in trouble for killing Goliath. He got in trouble for murdering Uriah. This is where, in English, we do have a different word, murder, than kill. And those are different words, but it deals with shedding innocent blood. And the Bible was against shedding innocent blood. God never wants innocent blood to be shed. That's, that's not what God is in favor of. And even when it comes to the Second Amendment, like, I, I think fundamentally we would understand this, right? If, if God forbid, some gunman showed up at, at some elementary school and opened fire on classes and on kids, He is murdering what he's trying to do. If there was an armed teacher and the armed teacher took down that gunman, that armed teacher killed, that armed teacher did not murder, right? Because the armed teacher was defending and protecting innocent life and was shedding guilty blood. This is the distinction you even see in the Bible. Now, why does this really matter? Because if you look in American culture today, if we think about the notion of shedding innocent blood, there is an issue that deals with shedding innocent blood more than anything else. More than 60 million babies since Roe versus Wade. This is an issue of shedding innocent blood. And I would argue that abortion is the number one indicator or the number one issue we should look at because it is the number one indicator of someone's worldview. If you are not right on the issue of abortion, then you will not be right on hardly any other issue. Because if you can't acknowledge that God is the author and giver of life, 
and that life is sacred, then, then you're probably not going to believe in any of the other things we could talk about being important. Now, again, we could talk about whether it's abortion, but if you're not right on the issue of abortion, you're probably not right on marriage and family because if there is no God who gave us life, then it should be whoever loves each other should get married and families are however you feel like you want them to be or this notion of, of public religious acknowledgement of God, of religious liberty, religious freedom. Well, if there is no God who's the author and giver of life, then, then you don't need to worship God in public. You just do that in your private. Do it in your church, but don't do it in your business, right? And, and lest you think, right, this is not a reality, if you are a florist, if you are a photographer, if you are a cake baker, right, I mean, we can go down the list. There are people dealing with this on a very real level because people think you shouldn't be able to acknowledge or worship God outside of church. No, this is a big deal. We should be able in all our ways to acknowledge him and that's part of what God calls us to do. Also, this notion of private property. See, if you're not right on the issue of, of abortion, you'll be wrong, I would argue, on almost every other issue because abortion is a great indicator of worldview. With that being said, those are four issues just from the Ten Commandments, right? There's more commands, but those are the Ten Commandments, and God said this is the foundation upon which we build. There were 613 commands in the Old Testament, but he started with 10. This is the foundation. We're building from there. And I pointed out other two things we can point to are judges and Israel. As a Christian, if we are looking at elections and we say, okay, we need to choose new leaders, what kind of leaders should we look for? I would point out that when the Bible talks about righteousness exalting a nation, those are issues that impact the righteousness of the nation. And so those are issues that should lead our thinking when we look at candidates, when we look at political parties, where do they stand in regard to this? And remember, th th this is not a political talk, this is a Bible talk. This is what the Bible says. Did God deal with the issue of the environment? Yes. Did God deal with the issue of immigration? Yes. Did God deal with the issue of self-defense? Yes. It just wasn't in his top 10. And God didn't say those issues impacted righteousness. God said these issues impact righteousness. And let me go back for a second to Judges, because there's a lot of conversation right now with judges because after the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and President Trump has said he's going to appoint somebody new, there's a lot of conversation about judges. And let me give you a few more verses of what the Bible tells us about judges. By the way, remember, keep in mind, judges are the ones who said that abortion was legal. This was never passed by legislatures. Judges said abortion was legal. Judges are the ones who said that marriage could be between anybody that wanted to be married, 32 states had already defined in their state that marriage was only gonna be between a man and a woman and judges stepped in and overturned that. Even California. I don't know how y'all feel about California here in Texas. We think they're crazy. Even California passed legislation that defined and was a ballot measure that defined marriage as a man and woman. It was overturned by a federal judge then overturned by the US Supreme Court. Judges are the ones who said that marriage can be whatever you want it to be. Judges are the ones who said that you cannot have prayer in schools, you can't have prayer at high school football games, you can't have prayer at city councils, you can't have prayer, et cetera, et cetera. Judges are the ones who said you can't have religious freedom in your businesses, et cetera, et cetera. Judges are the ones who said that even this notion of private property becomes very subjective because whether it's eminent domain, whether it's your business, well, no, you can't run it the way you want to because you're subject to the, the desire of the people. It's, it's ridiculous where judges go, but judges are the ones who have done this. Now, the reason that matters is because the Bible talks about how judges impact righteousness. Psalms 2.10, be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, kiss the son, lest he be angry and his wrath be kindled. You know, judges can kindle the wrath of God. That's interesting. 
David was pretty clear on this. Now, I would point out, when you talk about killing 60 million unborn children, I would think that's kindling the wrath of God. Billy Graham once said, if God doesn't judge America for her sins, God will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah on judgment day. I mean, I, I, I don't have an argument for that. I think it's probably right. God might be giving us a chance to change and remedy this. God might be holding off judgment for a while, but the fact is, judges can kindle the wrath of God is what David writes in Psalms. You also have 2 Chronicles 19. Judges, take heed to what you are doing. For you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you in judgment. Therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judges are supposed to represent God. And when they do not do godly things, if they're there to represent God, you can just know God's not happy with them being ungodly in what they do because that is their role. Ezra 7.25, God told Ezra, appoint judges who know the laws of God. These are the kind of judges you need. And, and this then becomes very significant now. Again, this is very significant because as we look at this issue of judges, as you look at the U.S. Supreme Court and the fact that President Trump has said he's going to nominate somebody and there's people saying, wait a second, whoa, that, that, that let the election decide. And people point out, well, Mitch McConnell, right? He said in 2016 that, that the next president should decide. So why is it that way? It's worth noting. What Mitch McConnell actually said was not what was repeated so often because he gave a little more context. Mitch McConnell pointed out that when the Senate is of, of one political party and the president is of another political party and it's in an election year, then you let the election determine because if the next election allows the president to switch parties, then they've determined. But if in that election that the Senate switches or they say the same, then you have to go forward with whatever happens. That's actually historically true. When you look back in the history of our nation, there were 29 times when there was a vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court during an election year. 19 of those times, those vacancies occurred when the president and the Senate were both of the same political party. When that happened, 19 times a president appointed a justice 17 of the 19 times that justice was confirmed and appointed in the same year of the election when there was a vacancy, when they were both in the same political party. There were 10 times when the president and the Senate were of different political parties and the president still appointed or the president nominated a, a justice. Only two of those 10 times was a justice appointed when they were from different political parties. So historically, this is not a brand new deal. This has happened many times before. And actually, historically, if you go back from the founding fathers era coming all the way through the early 1900s, whenever there was a opening on the U.S. Supreme Court, the nomination and confirmation took less than seven days on average. Sometimes it was the same day. Sometimes it was two days. Sometimes it was three days. But the average was never more than seven days from the founding fathers all the way up to the early 1900s. Now, in the early 1900s, you have the growth of the progressive movement. And as progressives are coming in and they're taking over and they're trying to impact things and do things, this is when the idea that we have a living constitution. And judges, actually, there was a Supreme Court justice who said the constitution is real, but the constitution is whatever we say it is. Well, that was the new position of these progressive judges. So then there began to be some arguments, extended arguments, on the Senate floor about whether or not we, we should have justices or judges going in who didn't view the Constitution as being authoritative or true or structuralist in what it says, originalist. And so then you see that the confirmation process opened up and it began to take a month on average. So from the 
early 1900s all the way through the 1980s, it was about a month for the nomination confirmation process. It wasn't until President Ronald Reagan was around and he nominates a justice known as, well, the justice was Bork, but what happened to the justice became known as Borking because this justice who, now 1973 is when Roe versus Wade happened. This judge had, just Judge Bork had said that Roe versus Wade is unconstitutional. It was setting a bad precedent and it needs to be overturned. So he was very clear in that position. When Reagan appoints Bork or nominates him to the U.S. Supreme Court, there were Democrats in Congress who said, well, we can't let this guy get, get to the Supreme Court because we know he's going to try to overturn Roe versus Wade. And so this was the first time you saw that the Senate no longer was looking at just whether or not somebody was qualified. They were looking at their political positions as to whether or not we could nominate that person or not. So they said, no, we can't allow, allow this guy to go through. So Bork did not receive the confirmation after he was nominated because he was against the judicial decision of Roe versus Wade. Now, that didn't start until the 1980s under Reagan. That is the way we know it today. It's just not historically been the way it was. What is so significant is today, we live in such a politically motivated climate that before President Trump ever even nominated somebody, you had all the Democrats saying, well, we're gonna vote against it. And all the Republicans saying, we're gonna vote for it. You don't even know who it's gonna be yet, right? But because we live in this political climate, everybody was just choosing their side. This is not the way historically it used to be. But I point all this out so that we understand even contextually, this is not something new or unusual that the president, if the president and the Senate are the same political party, historically, yes, the president can nominate, the Senate can confirm and that is a normal part of the process going through, even though there's a lot of tension and frustration for people, this is a very normal thing. And remember, judges become very, very important. I know a lot of Christians who initially when they voted for Trump, one of the primary reasons they voted for Trump was the issue of judges. Because they wanted to get the right kind of judges, knowing that judges actually do impact righteousness. As we finish, I'm gonna give you a few thoughts in closing. Reverend Charles Finney was a pastor in the second great awakening, was a, a great leader. One of the things he said, challenging the church, the church must take right ground in regard to politics. Politics are part of a religion in a country as this, and Christians must do their duty to their country as part of their duty to God. God will bless or curse this nation according to the course that Christians take in politics. Now, that's a really interesting thought that God could bless or curse America based on Christian involvement. How could that be? Well, if righteousness is what exalts a nation, if Christians don't get involved, then there is no righteousness being promoted and therefore there's not things that God can bless because Christians weren't involved in the process. What's interesting is when Charles Finney gave this speech, it was in a series of lectures known as the hindrances to revival. Charles Finney said, if we want God to move, we have to get involved in the process. Now, that might seem like an extreme position, but let me point out a couple of things. Right now, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled 1962 that, that, the, or that prayer was no longer allowed in schools. 1963, they ruled the Bible was no longer allowed in schools. We would love to see a revival happen in the school system in America. We would love for every kid to be saved and know who Jesus is personally. I would point out it would be a lot easier for them to learn about Jesus if Jesus was still allowed to be taught in their schools. This is part of what he points out, the hindrances to revival. If Christians aren't a part of the process, then there's actually things that can happen that can make it very hard or there can be a hindrance to revival because of obstacles that have come up along the way. With this being said, this is why he said Christians have to vote. Now, we've talked about issues of righteousness, but what if we're looking at people? What kind of people should we look for? Well, certainly you want people that... that have those specific issues of righteousness that are part of their values and priority. 
But God also told Moses a, a value checklist that he should look at in Exodus 18, 21. This is when, when Moses is leading all the Israelites and Jethro comes to Moses and he says, man, you are overwhelmed. You need to get some help. And here's what Jethro told Moses. Choose from among you able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covenants, and place such over them to be rulers. There were four things he said. You need to choose able men. I think it's interesting he says choose able men before he says choose men that fear God. Fear God was second. That's interesting. Why would it be second? Well, I would point out that you need to have people who are actually able and qualified because if you choose someone who really loves Jesus and doesn't know how to even balance their checkbook, that's not gonna be very helpful, right? I need someone that let's start with, right? Has some qualifications that would give you indication like this is a very capable person. Right? You can see what they've done in their business, see what they've done in their family. You, you can look, that's a very qualified person, but we don't just need qualified. I need someone that fears God. And this is important in America because in America, we recognize that our rights don't come from government. They come from God. But if you don't have someone who fear God, fears God, all of a sudden, they're gonna think the government can dictate and micromanage your life because they don't believe in God-given rights because they don't believe in God. So I need someone, not just as capable, I need someone that fears God. And then, someone who is honest and truthful. This is something that unfortunately has become the standard in politics that we just expect politicians to lie. That's just kind of become the norm. What is interesting to me is as much as we can say about President Trump in a critical fashion or maybe a positive fashion, I'm not trying to be super political, I just think it's interesting. All the way back since President Clinton, every single president since President Clinton has said, we are going to move the U.S. Embassy into Jerusalem. Every single president said that. And then every president said, well, we don't want political controversy. We don't want to stir up trouble. We don't want trouble in the Middle East. We're not going to do it. President Trump's the first one who actually did what he said he was going to do. Now, doesn't mean everything he says is honest. Doesn't, right? I, I'm not defending everything. I'm just saying it's, it's interesting. But one of the things that we're supposed to look for is people who keep their word and do what they say they're going to do so that we actually know what they're going to be walking forward. And then the last one is people that hate covetousness. Hating covetousness is people who are not in it for their own personal gain. It is staggering to me how you have so many politicians that when they entered into politics, their net worth is under a million dollars. And now after 40 years of being a congresswoman, not naming names, but I can, Somebody has two, two $20,000 freezers, net worth over an estimated $100 million. How did you become wealthy as a servant of the American people, right? Because we have people who don't hate covetousness, and this is something we need people who are not going into politics, who are not trying to get elected for their own personal gain. I'm not here to serve me. I'm here to serve somebody else, right? Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but, but he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is the idea we get from scripture is we need people who are qualified, people that fear God, that recognize we have God-given rights, not government given our rights. They come from God. People who are honest, who are gonna do what they said they're gonna do and who are not just in it for their own personal gain. These are the kind of people we are looking for. And this is where I wanna point out, as, as we look at this, we have to learn as Christians to prioritize the issues, number one. But in prioritizing issues, number two, I would point out is we have to understand that policies are more important than personalities. Because one of the things that is debated so often is, yeah, but I don't like this person. Well, look how mean. Well, look at this, look at that. Okay, let me just ask you a question from the Bible. What was King David's personality like? 
Oh, that was his complexion. Do you know the Bible doesn't tell us what his personality was like. It just told us what he did and didn't do. We don't know what his personality was like. You might have really liked David. You might not have. In fact, even Jesus. Was Jesus an introvert or extrovert? You don't know. Well, Jesus was with people all the time. Yes, but he also went off by himself all the time to get away from people. Was he an Understand, this is not the point. The point is not somebody's personality. The point is, where do they stand? What did they do? What did they not do? Did they honor God? Did they not honor God? It's not a personality contest. Policies impact righteousness much more than somebody's personality, okay? Now, that doesn't mean you have to like the person, but understand that policies are more important than personalities. And this is where, again, the Bible tells us righteousness is what exalts a nation. I wanna finish with two thoughts from guys that were notable Americans. The first one is Patrick Henry. He's the guy who gave the famous, give me liberty or give me death speech. Here's what he said. Righteousness alone can exalt America as a nation. Reader, whoever thou art, remember this. The great pillars of, our, of all government are virtue, morality, and religion. This is the armor, my friend, and this alone that renders us invincible. Frederick Douglass, another name I think probably we're familiar with. He said, I have one great political idea. That idea is an old one. It is widely and generally assented to. Nevertheless, it is generally trampled upon and disregarded. The best expression of it I have found in the Bible, it is in substance, righteousness exalted the nation. Sin is a reproach to many people. This constitutes my politics, the negative and positive of my politics and the whole of my politics. I feel it my duty to do all in my power to infuse this idea into the public mind. What used to be a priority in America is this notion that we get from the Bible that it's actually righteousness that exalts a nation, okay? We get so caught up in political parties. I can tell you right now, as a Christian, you should not be a party person. You should be a Bible person. And the Bible gives us an idea of how to prioritize issues. I can tell you right now, there's one party I tend to vote for more than the other, but I don't care about a party. And if the other party did a better job being biblical, I'd vote for that party in a heartbeat because my allegiance is not to a party. My allegiance is to God and the truth he has revealed to me in his word. And by the way, revealed to all of us, we want to learn this. Now, with all this being said, I, I, I mentioned this morning, there is so much more information. I, I could go through literally hundreds of stories of people, like we did talk about Dwight Eisenhower tonight. We've, we, I, literally hundreds. And in this book, there are dozens, if not hundreds of stories we go through. And just like King David, we show some of the good, some of the bad, some of the ugly. You see they were a human. You see they weren't perfect, but you see how God used them. We start with Christopher Columbus and we go all the way through roughly to Abraham Lincoln and you see their life story. It's a great way to, to learn more than probably what we hear on the news, what we hear and or read on some blog, some internet online, something else. There's so much more to the American story. And frankly, we live in a culture that's not intentionally being truthful or honest. So we don't often know what is actually true. This is a great place to go and look. Uh, the Wall Brothers website has more than a thousand articles and we try to deal with stuff that's cultural. We're writing new articles every single week. So that number is growing. Uh, also, I talked about the Founders Bible this morning. It's another really good place. As, as Christians, we all need to know the Bible. We do. We need to spend time in God's word every single day. One of the things that we love about this this resource is, this is a great way not just to learn the Bible, but as you spend time studying God's word, we actually have the footnotes, the quotes 
beside different verses where founding fathers talked about how this Bible verse shaped my ideas or public policy or relationships or whatever else. There are thousands of examples in here and there's many more we didn't put in there, but this a great resource is also available in digital form. We also have different kinds of fun apps. Um, there's a president's trivia stuff. And, and again, it's, it's kind of fun stuff. We wanted to make something that could be interactive for parents and grandparents with kids, um, such as which president had a pet alligator in the White House? John Quincy Adams. Which president had pet bears in the White House? Thomas Jefferson, right? We can go through the, there's a lot of fun trivia stuff that's there. There's all kinds of other resources on the website as well. We're also all over social media um, that we'd encourage you if, if you're on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, or whatever else. We even have a YouTube channel where we try to put lots of this content out there. And a lot of times it's in much shorter segments, manageable for families or whatever else. But I wanna finish by encouraging us in our nation, what our nation needs desperately is a renewal of righteousness. Because our nation, we, we are having a, a crisis of conscience, right? A, we're having a cultural identity crisis right now. And only Christians can restore righteousness. Why? Because we're the only ones who believe in and know what righteousness is based on scripture. So we can't expect righteousness to be restored if we don't become part of the process. And part of how we have to do this is recognize that policies are what we are looking for, number one. We're looking on the issues of life and of marriage and of family, of religious liberty, of private property, of judges of Israel, the kind of candidates who are able men that fear God, men of truth, hating covenants. As Christians, we have to be engaged in the process so that we can choose the kind of leaders who help lead America to a place that God can once again bless America. Thank you guys again for letting me share and pastor, I'll turn it back to you.